We are in 1 Corinthians again, so you may want to turn in your Bibles there. You know, based on responses from last week's message on holiness and purity, I would say that uh, many of us have been thinking about this perhaps in a, uh, in a new way. And uh, you might recall that we talked from 1 Corinthians 5 about uh, a situation that was going on in the church where a man had, his, uh, had a relationship, a sexual relationship, with his stepmom. And that even in sex-crazed Corinth, there were people, the, the Corinthians would have thought that was weird and gross. But the Corinthian Christians just let it happen. And nobody said anything about it. Nobody wanted to deal with it. And Paul now writes this very challenging letter to them and says, listen, you've got to exercise some tough love in this situation and to remove this man from your fellowship. And we talked last week about the reality that holiness is happiness. Holiness is happiness. And that God is the holiest person in the universe, and he is also the happiest person in the universe. A holy Christian is a happy Christian. Sin is painful. Sin is destructive. Sin destroys that image that God has made us in. We're made to be happy in holiness. And God's people have got to have that resolved in our hearts that this is the reality. Or when I go into my day tomorrow or this week and the, and the, the temptations of the world around us are there and the values are there, we're going to easily fall. Unless I right now say, listen, purity is the way to go. Holiness is happiness. So Paul's focus in 1 Corinthians 5 is on, is on holiness, but it's more on a church-wide level. And we were talking, pastors were talking about um, how can we get some practical help to uh, pursuing holiness on a personal level? Because Paul doesn't get into that. We could ask, wish that he did, but he doesn't. Uh, But we think that there's probably a lot of us that would like maybe some help in that. And so we have available in the comments today a classic uh, Christian book by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness. This is a great book if you're a new Christian old Christian, doesn't matter. It would be helpful to you. Uh, we got it, I think, at the best price that we can, and we just made it available. We may have ran out, I don't know, but there's a sign-up. We can get the rest of this week and have them for you next week. But I would really encourage uh, you to read this book on a personal level, on a practical level. How do I, how do I seek holiness in, in my life? All right, we're going to come back to uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8 about halfway through the message. I want to finish the chapter, though, first of all. And so let's, uh, let's do that, beginning in uh, verse 9. Here's what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Have you ever written a letter, an email, and been misunderstood? 
Happens a lot, doesn't it? The person writes back, and they're, you know, I've got hurt feelings about this. What did you mean by that? And you quickly write back, oh, I didn't mean it that way. Or you call them. And in our uh, day, we can resolve these things very quickly. But this was not true in the Roman world. Uh, in the Roman world, which was actually a vast improvement from the way it had been before because of their road systems, they did have mail. But the way that it worked was you wrote a letter. You put it in the mail. Somebody... So you ship it, send it with a courier or somebody to uh, wherever it's going. It takes months to get there. That person gets the letter, reads the letter. Now they're confused. And so they write a response. And they send it back to you. It takes months to get all the way back to you. In which time you get the letter and you realize that they're confused. And so then you write a clarification letter and you send it back to them. It takes months to get to them. So the whole thing... When there was miscommunication or confusion would take many, many months for it to be uh, resolved. What Paul says here in verse 9 is, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I wrote to you in my letter. Now, wait a second. Aren't we studying 1 Corinthians? And yet in 1 Corinthians, he says that he's already written a letter to the Corinthians. Wouldn't that make that letter, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians actually 2 Corinthians? And then in chapter 7, he talks about the letter that they wrote back to him. So he's already written a letter to them. They've already written a letter back to him. Now he writes to them what we call 1 Corinthians. Well, but it's actually 2 Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians, he talks about a sorrowful letter that he wrote to the Corinthians that's not first, what we call 1 Corinthians. So that would actually be 3 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians would be 4 Corinthians. But we call 2 Corinthians 1 Corinthians, and 4 Corinthians 2 Corinthians. So, did you follow that? It's a little confusing, isn't it? And it's actually confusion that Paul is... Uh, addressing now in verse 9 and what happened was in the in the first letter that he wrote to them he wrote in there do not associate with sexually immoral people and the corinthians get this letter and remember what corinth was like they get this letter and paul says do not associate with sexually immoral people and they're like oh no how are we possibly going to do that in a city like corinth everybody's immoral in corinth you know, this would be like, like uh, uh, you know, being in Chicago and being told, do not associate with a Bears fan or something like that. You'd be like, how can I do that? Everybody is. So they have this, uh, they're confused. What do you mean don't associate with sexually immoral people? How can we possibly do that without isolating from everybody around us? Now, you may say, well, nobody would actually do that. But actually, there are whole brands of Christianity who try to do that, to isolate from sinful people. And they create, the church becomes then a bubble. We are, we are people free from sin. We do not allow any sinners here. And homes become bubbles. We don't want any sinful, sinful people here. We want no sinful influence here. And, and there are whole like denominations of churches who largely are isolating from any sinful people in the world. Lots of churches today worshiping, doing that thing right now. Now, what's the problem with that approach where the church becomes a bubble and the home becomes a bubble? Clearly, Jesus did not practice this, did he? In fact, what was Jesus, who was Jesus known for hanging out with? Sinners, right? 
And the Pharisees, who were more on the bubble side of things, were like, I can't believe that he's hanging out with them. But Jesus came. He says, it's not the healthy that need a uh, doctor. It is the sick. Okay? So Jesus didn't do it. Paul clearly didn't do it. You could read his, his story in the book of Acts. He penetrates into a pagan world by precisely hanging out with sinners and taking the gospel to them. So Paul didn't do it. Jesus didn't do it. And what's the really hard thing if you're going to make your mission to, to, uh, to stay away from anybody that's sinful? Who's it most hard to get away from? That's right. You look in the mirror and you're like, oh, I'm still there. <laughs> Thank you. Whoever is over here uh, responding to that. So what Paul does here is he clarifies what he meant in his previous letter. And he adds a little sarcasm in verse 10 by saying, listen, I didn't mean that you don't associate with anybody in the world that is sexually immoral. And he adds this comment to do that. You would need to go out of the world. Okay. And that's true. That's true for us today. If we were saying, Hey, you know what? We can't associate with anybody that's sinful. You can't go to the grocery store. You can't go. You can't do anything because this is of course a sinful world. And Paul says, I'm not talking about immoral people in the world. God judges them. Verse 13. He's talking about immoral people that are in the church, people that are claiming to be a Christian, and yet there is a chronic and an unrepentant spirit over a sin in their life that they are refusing to deal with, and yet they want to remain in the church. That's the person that he's talking about. And what he does then is he, he gives a list really of six examples here of, of chronic sin. The first one is sexual immorality. Secondly is, is greed. The word there uh, in the Greek means must have more. See people like that at the store, right? Must have more. That's greed. Next is idolaters, revilers. Some of your translations translate that slanderer. Uh, drunkard is the next in the list. And we've talked about this in the past. There's teaching in the bookstore about it. The Bible does not anywhere absolutely prohibit uh, the use of alcohol, but it is filled with warnings about its excesses and abuses. So drunkard. Next is swindler. And this was a major problem we know in Corinth where they would go to the baths, the public baths, or maybe an athletic event, and they would have to, you know, disrobe or whatever to be a part of that. And chronically, people were there. A petty theft was, was chronic in, in Corinth. Kind of like maybe going to the Y or a gym where you put your clothes in the locker. And then you go in, you work out, and you come back. And you find out somebody's been going through the locker. That happens a lot. It happened a lot in Corinth. Those kind of people don't associate with them if they claim to be a brother. So immorality, greed, slander, theft. Does that sound like any other list that you've heard of the 10 commandments of course especially the last five talk about thou shalt not commit adultery thou shalt not uh murder he doesn't have that on here but thou shalt not steal thou shalt not lie thou shalt not covet it's basically the same thing which makes me believe that he's not saying here are the six things do not associate with these but all the rest are okay it is exemplary of the kinds of sins that people oftentimes come into bondage to and that these are the these are the things that when a, a human heart is is wrapped up in it and is deceived by sin 
that there is a, there can be a, just a refusal to listen to anybody who has something to say about it. This is the brother that Paul is talking about. Don't associate with them. The Greek word there means to mix up with. Associate. Don't mix up with them. We might say it this way. Don't hang out with them in our culture. And verse 11 adds a, uh, a command. Don't even eat with such a person. This is a cultural thing as well in the first century. A little different today. But in the first century, to have a meal with somebody was an indication that you, you were completely accepting them. You were, you were relationally fellowshipping with them. A little different than today where we'll maybe meet somebody for a meal and don't even know them. And it doesn't necessarily mean that to us. But in that day, it was a big deal. You can think of Revelation 3.20 where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice and comes and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. What is Jesus saying there? It's not about the food. It is about the relationship. It is about the acceptance. It is about the fellowship. Don't eat with a brother or sister who is in a state of rebellion and chronic sin that they are refusing to deal with. They're not talking here about somebody who's struggling with a sin, who's, who's trying to work through it, who is, is, you know, and we're all at some point in our life in that kind of a state. That's not what he's talking about. It is the hard-hearted, rebellious spirit. That's the brother that we are not to fellowship with. And so here we, we chapter five is about church discipline. We talked about it last week, some more. Uh, when we have talked about this with our church family, when our church has exercised this, heartbrokenly in some situations, what we have told our church family is that uh, basically don't act like everything's normal. If they say, hey, let's get together and let's go to the ball game. Don't do that. You know, let's go out and have some uh, coffee together. Don't do that. Unless you can say this to them and they agree to it. Let's get together, but let's talk about how you can be restored to God and to the church. Then go out with them, but only talk about that. Don't act like everything is okay. So that's tough love. And that's what Paul is laying out here for the church. And tough love is required for a church that is committed to purity. And we want to be a church that is committed to that. And this is not easy. It is hard. I met a couple. They sat right over here last night. And uh, they're brand new, never been here before. I said, listen, this is the kind of church that we're trying to be. Number one, we believe the Bible to be God's word and we preach it unapologetically. Secondly, we're trying to love one another and love the community. That's what kind of church we're trying to be. But that first point's an important one. It's easy to follow verses that talk, that are easy, you know, the easy obedience verses. The real test of whether God's word is our authority is in the difficult times. And this is a kind of difficult thing. So. I'd like to synthesize this teaching on church discipline into what it really is saying. Let me summarize it this way. Why should a church do this? Number one is for the sake of the individual. The goal of the discipline is not punishment. It is not vindictive. It is remedial. The goal is to restore the individual to God in his walk with the Lord and to help him overcome in this particular sin. And we need this in our life. We need God's people to love us enough to speak the truth to us. And again, it's not American. 
Because we typically want, you know, your thing's your thing, my thing's my thing. I don't have a right to say anything to you. You don't have a right to say anything to me. We'll just get along that way. That is not biblical Christianity. We need people to hold us accountable, don't we? We need people to speak truth into our life because we have blind spots and we have, we have, uh, we are all biased towards ourselves, And so we can't see the things that are needed for us to grow. And so God has set it up in Matthew 18. You can read Jesus teaching on this where we speak the truth to one another tenderly and humbly, brokenly, but truthfully, we speak the truth in love. And if the sin in that individual's life is what they really want. This is what I want. This is the way it's going to be. The church is called to let the sinner feel the consequences of that sin. And sin has consequences. Sin gets old. It is pleasurable, Proverbs says, for a season. But then it gets old. And then you start to feel the consequences of the foolishness of that decision. And the, and the result of that is hopefully that the individual begins to come to their senses and to realize, wait a second, I have made a grave mistake. I need to make changes in my life. I need to be restored to God and to the church. That's the goal of the tough love. You know, the old adage is true. We don't break the Ten Commandments. They break us. Young people, listen to me. You will, not, you will never break the Ten Commandments. They are God's word. They will break you. That's what happens. And the sooner you realize that, the happier your life is going to be. Because holiness is happiness. Sin is pain. Sin is pain. So, when the church gets to uh, be a part of this is when the individual comes to their senses on the other side of the sin and realizes, you know what? This is just, I have been a fool. Now the church is there with grace and love and restoration. That's what we're called to do. And to be ready to do that. And to really do it. Not to just say it, but to really forgive like Christ has forgiven us. Good place for an amen there. Okay. So that's the goal. It's for the good of the individual, for their restoration. And all of us need it. When I teach a pre-membership class on this point, I, I say, listen, I need this in my life. I want to know that, the, that I'm accountable to people. That there's people that are going to speak the truth to me. I need it. And I believe all of us do. Secondly, is for the purity of the church. Why does the church practice discipline? For the purity of the church. What happens when sin is not dealt with? It has an effect, an influence on the entire uh, congregation. This is why Paul says here, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Let me give you an illustration of this. Spring is coming, and we're glad for that, aren't we? Wasn't that nice? It was Friday. It was a beautiful day. And I don't know if you got to get outside on, on Friday or not, but it just sort of, it just kind of put us in the mood, didn't it, for uh, spring to get here. It was great. So spring is coming. Let's imagine that it is uh, mid to late April, okay? Mid to late April, and, and there you are. You wake up in the morning, and and it's just one of those beautiful spring days that we can't wait to, to arrive. The sun is sparkling through the trees. There's just sort of a, a freshness in the air. And, and uh, you wake up and you're just sort of, you know, I, I love the spring. I just start feeling good in the spring for whatever reason. And so there you are. You're feeling good. You're sort of feeling your oats. Life's good. You're feeling sort of vibrant again. And you got your morning coffee. And, and you go and you look out your front window and you're looking at your front yard. 
And you're so glad that you were wise enough to, to do the pre-spring uh, fertilizer and you're noticing how your yard looks just a little better than the neighbors around you and you're just kind of having one of those happy moments. Are you with me? <laughs> None of you put down the pre-spring fertilizer apparently. <laughs> Somebody in your neighborhood is, is glad that their yard looks better than yours is probably what happens. So anyway, I digress. There you are and you've got your cup of coffee and, and you, just, you know, you're, just, you're just sort of looking out and admiring it and feeling great about life. And then you notice right there in the middle of the front yard blooming. dandelion. There it is. And your little son comes up and goes, Daddy, look at the pretty yellow flower. <laughs> and you're like, shut up, son, no. <laughs> yeah, forget the choking thing. That was bad. I... <laughs> Aren't you glad we don't have a TV ministry, huh? So anyway, you, uh, you see the dandelion, and you're not happy about it, right? You look at it, and you're like, oh, you are so going to die. You know, you're just thinking, I'm rushing out there. I'm going to get my spray, and I'm going to take you out. Now, why do you feel that way? Because you know something about dandelions, right? You know that the dandelion is kind of pretty when it's yellow, but that nasty little thing turns white. And when it turns white, it's little seeds spread around. And you know it won't be very long before that one dandelion is like a whole bunch of dandelions. So you're like, I'm going to get it now. You're dead. Okay. Same scenario. It's a beautiful morning. You are feeling your oats. Your, your life's good. Springtime. Sun is up. Sparkling through the trees. Fresh coffee in your hand. Uh, 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 Christmas and freshness in the air. You go, you look out your, your, front, your front window there, and you're just admiring your greening grass and how great it looks. And then you see it just over the property line in the neighbor's yard. Dandelion. Now, what do you think to yourself? Do you think his dandelions are his business, not mine? We need to live and let live. Not if you care about the, your yard. What you think to yourself, if you're like me, you begin to calculate, if I stood on the property line and I sprayed it as hard as I could, could I think I maybe could get to that dandelion. Why? Because you want it dead. Because you know that dandelions in your neighbor's yard soon become dandelions in your yard. And if you care about the purity of your yard, you're very interested in the dandelions in your neighbor's yard. They have an influence, don't they? And friends, listen, sin is that way. We can think that sin, my sin doesn't have any impact or my neighbor's, my fellow Christian sin has no impact on us. But it does. Especially when it is not dealt with in the church. Because here now there's known sin in the congregation. And younger Christians see that in the older Christian. And they think to themselves, well, I thought he was a great Christian. But look what's happening, on, happening here. And obviously the church doesn't seem to care about it because they're not dealing with it. And he's just allowed to do all the things that he did. And on and on it goes. And it undermines the moral authority of the church. And it, it corrodes the vibrancy spiritually of the congregation. 
And so Paul says, listen, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You've got to realize that you are in it together. For a neighborhood to have a dandelion-free subdivision, they all got to work together, right? Because if one yard is all dandelions, then there's dandelions throughout the entire subdivision. We're in it together. And spiritually speaking, we are in this together. And your pursuit of holiness has an impact on their pursuit of holiness. And their pursuit of holiness has an impact on yours. And that's one of the reasons, another reason, that we need to take seriously striving for holiness in our life. Because when my, when, when, when my heart hardens and when I am deceived by sin, it has a corroding effect even on the lives of people that I care about. And mom and dad in particular, I'd say to you, you better think about that in regards to the way that you live your life. Those little eyes are watching every day. So sin has an influence beyond just the individuals, and that is why purity is a church-wide project. Third is for the testimony of Jesus in the community. You know, listen to me here, please. Someday I may have to refer to this. I don't want to. We'll do it brokenly. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Sin is going to happen. Sin is going to become somewhat publicly known in the church. It's not a matter of if, it's, it's when. We've had it in the, before. It's going to happen again. The reason, one reason this is so important for us to deal with rightly is that in the community, they're all wondering whether we really believe what we say that we believe. And the community, you know, the community's sensitivity to hypocrisy is like on maximum when it comes to a church. That's why if something happens at the sportsman's club, you don't read about it. Something happens at the Kiwanis, nobody cares. Something happens in a church, it's national news. Why is that? Because they wonder what we're really all about. And it's not if sin happens, but how we handle it. And what do we believe here? We believe that we are great sinners. We are. All of us are. But Christ is a great Savior. And what that means for us then is that we need to deal with this tenderly, lovingly, carefully, but to make sure that the way that we deal with it doesn't undermine the testimony of Christ in the community. Because on the other side of whoever did whatever they did, the church is still going to be here called to fulfill the Great Commission in Northwest Indiana. And when that when, when, when the credibility is shot, the authority, the, the gravitas of the church, the right that we have to speak truth in the community is undermined. And so we have to be very, very careful. And I will tell you that sometimes the church is in impossible situations. I've had them since I've been here. It's like, you know, you talk about lose, win-win or win-lose. We're in like lose-lose. There's just like... There's, sometimes there are, you just have, don't know what to do, truly. So apply grace to your leaders as we try to do it as best as we can. But we need to take this very seriously for the sake of Jesus' name and his reputation and the fame of his name, which we want to hold high. One commentator said this, The world is waiting to see such a church, a church which takes sin seriously, which enjoys forgiveness fully, which in its time of gathering together combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's immediacy and authority. And I love the balance of that statement. You know, sin and morality is a very important theological truth. Absolutely. 
But grace is also a very important theological truth. And forgiveness is an essential part of the gospel. And the church is called truly to hold a high moral standard, but also to hold a high grace standard and a high forgiveness standard and to display to the world that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great savior. And to call them to the same fountain of forgiveness that we have tasted and love. So let's be that kind of church. And to celebrate Christ fully. All right, here's the last thing I want to say to you. But it's going to take me a little while to say it. (laughs) I want to talk to you about uh, the purity party. Okay? The purity party. Partying may seem like an odd thing to bring up in a chapter on church discipline, but that's what Paul brings up now. He brings up celebrating. And you'll see this now in verse 6. Here's what it says. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here we have now this interesting interjection of a concept of celebration. And what he brings up now is it's essentially a, uh, a sermon illustration. He brings up the Jewish celebration of Passover. Now, you'll recall that the night that God brings Israel out of Egypt, that he gave them very specific commands about what they were to do. Because the 10th plague, the death angel, was coming down upon Egypt, and he said to them, listen... You're to have a meal, you're to be ready to go, and in the meal you're to have no bread with leaven in it, and you are to kill the Passover lamb and take the blood of that lamb and to put it on the doorposts of the house. And when the death angel comes, he will see the blood and he will pass over that house and that home will be saved. Hence the name Passover, the Passover meal. And so this became then, by God's command, an annual celebration and reminder that God had delivered Israel out of Egypt, that they were set free from slavery. To this day, Orthodox Jews celebrate the Passover. Jesus celebrated the Passover the night that he was betrayed. You might recall in the upper room. If you've ever been to a Seder service, you've seen that ceremony and what they do. And all of it is imagery. And Paul now takes this Jewish illustration and says, listen, Corinthians, Christ is our Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate. But wait a second, celebrate there in the, in the Greek, it is present active, which means this, it is a continuous celebration. The Jews celebrate it once a year. Christians now, we celebrate it on and on and on. Every day is to be a celebration that Christ has set us free from the bondage of sin. So this is, this is a purity party. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm getting at here. We are called to celebrate constantly what Christ has done. Keep on celebrating. Keep on partying. Now, what are we celebrating? We are celebrating freedom from sin. We had a lyric in that last song that we sang that uh, because of his suffering, I am free. 
And my dear friends, if that language doesn't resonate in your heart today, it is because perhaps we have forgotten what it means to be set free, to not be under the wrath of God, to be given the promise of eternal life, to have the freedom from judgment that God promises upon the sinner, to be given by God a pass, to be declared righteous through justification. And for that to be a promise for eternity, it will never end, which means that this celebration of being free from sin is a party that will go on for eternity. Welcome to the party. It'll never stop. Christ has set us free. Praise him. It's a purity party. I'm free from sin. And I always will be. One of the church fathers, Chrysostom, said this, for the true Christian, it is always Easter. It is always Pentecost. It is always Christmas. When we get it, when we understand it, there is an ongoing celebration of what God has done. You know, earlier in the service, I said, okay, on Easter, we're going to have five services, and we're trying to accommodate all these people that, that uh, get excited about this once a year. Okay, we're making room for them, but I got to say, they don't get it. Because if they got it, they'd be here right now. And they would keep celebrating this. It is joy, Christmas joy, that sense that Christ has come. We celebrate that every day. He is incarnate every day. We celebrate Easter, that he is resurrected every day. We celebrate Good Friday every day. I am free, and I always will be, because of Christ. Amen. Now, how do we do this, though? How do we celebrate it? And Paul tells us, first of all, how not to do it. He says in verse 8, that we do not do it with malice and evil. Malice and evil. Essentially, we don't do it with sinfulness. He calls this the old leaven. And the idea here is that we have this new life in Christ by faith. We don't celebrate the new life in Christ by faith by living like the old life. We don't celebrate freedom from sin by continuing to sin. That is like totally illogical. It's much like I've never, I've never seen anybody, any community celebrate the 4th of July by acting British. I've been to the parade here, 4th of July parade in Crown Point. I've never seen a, a group of people, you know, British soldiers marking, marching in step like this. There's no British flags. None of that. We don't celebrate like we're British. We, you know, we, we've got American flags. We brush our teeth. We're, we're Americans. Why would Americans celebrate freedom from Britain by acting British? Somebody that has been declared free from melanoma cancer doesn't go to the tanning booth. They avoid it at all costs. They have been set free from that. How do you party? How do you celebrate purity? You celebrate it by pursuing purity. That's the party, or what he calls here sincerity and truth. Sincerity is like sincere in motive. Truth is the, the scriptures and the life in Christ, this living in the light. That's how we celebrate it. Christ has set us free from these things. Prior goes on to say this, Christians must continually celebrate their deliverance from sin without any compromise with the very things from which they have been set free. Otherwise, the whole worship and community life of the Christian church becomes a charade full of insincerity and falsehood. 
we know that Paul is talking of deliberate, repeated sin with the fellowship. And I want to emphasize that. I've said it a couple times, I think, already. But what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5 is not the individual who is struggling and trying to deal with and trying to overcome sin. That's not who he's talking about. This person is hard-hearted. They are refusing to listen. They are resolute in the fact that they are going to continue in this. That's the person who is in view. He says this, we, uh, we all commit sin. We all need cleansing, but we are all bound to be ruthless with anything that betrays our calling and taints our fellowship in Christ. Paul is not expecting perfect holiness or absolute purity. His plea is for sincerity and truth. So that essentially what a church is, we're, we're, not, an, we're, we're not an organization. We are a gathering of people who have all been, have tasted of, of freedom from sin, and we get together and we celebrate that. Whenever a church loses the fact that this is a celebration, it becomes a ritual. Now we just go to church because we go to church. We're just getting together because that's what we're supposed to do. And there's no vibrancy. There's no vitality. We have forgotten what we have been set free from, which must never happen. Let's not let that happen here at Bethel Church. Let's be people that are mindful of the fact that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And I want to get with other people and celebrate that I have been set free. It is a party. It is a celebration of freedom from sin. And of course, we do this imperfectly. Absolutely. All of us do this imperfectly. We, we embrace 1 John 1, 8, which says, If any man claims to be without sin, he deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. If you're here right now and you're like, I don't know all this talk about sin. I don't know if I like this church. I don't know that I don't have any sin in my life. That's pride. Yes, you do. Welcome to the party. <laughs> We're all, none of us are without sin. We love 1 John 1, 9, the very next verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I love the Greek word there for cleanse. It's not like a little boy washing before dinner kind of cleanse, you know. It's surgical cleanse. He will cleanse us, truly make us clean from all unrighteousness. He does this, and we are in need of this every day. We've been declared righteous, but we still sin, and we need to restore that relationship with God every day. And as we do this, God forgives our sins, and, and we forgive one another as well. Matthew 18, we're mindful of how much God has forgiven us. So when somebody offends us or does us wrong, we re recognize, look what God has forgiven in me, and now I will extend forgiveness to you. We do that. And as we do that week in and week out, purity becomes a kind of habit in our life. And you put that kind of people together, it becomes a characteristic of a church. And a holy church is a happy church. And a holy Christian is a happy Christian. And a holy God delights in a holy church filled with holy people and adds his blessing to it. And that joy then is compounded in the congregation. And when you have a church of people that are pursuing God and holiness, it is a party. Maybe we should put that on the sign. Bethel Church, we party here. Oh. 
course, then they come in. They're like, hey, great. Where's the party? We're like, uh, we're celebrating purity. Oh. <laughs> Bye-bye, <laughs> you know. All right, so let me just conclude with uh, uh, three keys to the church being a purity party very quickly. Number one, this requires individual passion for it. You might say, oh, we need pure leaders, and we do. We need pure kinship leaders, and we do. But this needs to be a part of the ethos of the congregation, church-wide, all of us individually. So how are you doing with that? As you anticipate this week, how important is living in obedience to the Lord to you? How much do you want holiness in your life? Do you really believe that holiness is happiness or not? We need to settle that matter. Jesus told us to pray every day, uh, Lord, to uh, lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. He knew what we needed was help in this pursuit of purity. Secondly, is interpersonal pursuit of holiness. You know, none of us can do this on our own. You could be here saying, I don't need anybody in my life. Yes, you do. The whole book of Hebrews is like one giant exhortation to be involved in each other's life, to make sure that none of our hearts harden over sin, that none of our hearts are deceived by sin. And we need one another because we have blind spots and we can't see things clearly. We think we can, but we can't. We need other, we need one another. And then thirdly is what I just call block parties, block parties. We need to celebrate spiritual victories more than we do. By the way, did you know that uh, this guy that was sleeping with his stepmom is actually a story of grace? This is a spiritual victory. You may not be aware of this. But in honor of a man that I listened to since I was a kid, Paul Harvey, would you like to know the rest of the story? Because there is a rest of the story. If you go to 2 Corinthians, which is really 4 Corinthians, uh, here's what it says in chapter 2, verse 5. Verse 6, for such a one, speaking of this man, the, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, friend, listen, I say this for your encouragement. You could be here and you're like, I am such a loser. I am such, there's, I have a sin in my life or sins in my life. There's no way that I can overcome them. God could never forgive me. This church could never deal with the kind of stuff that I've been doing. I doubt very much that whatever you're doing is any sort of like grosser than sleeping with your stepmom. And yet we find in the story that this man who did that chronically, repented and was restored to fellowship and someday in heaven christian you're likely to meet him oh you're the first corinthians 5 guy that's right i am praise god for his mercy and his grace and so you might be here wondering whether that is possible or if god could love you or do it look at this man and see in god's word the reality that god forgives all of our sin, that Christ's death is sufficient for it all. And we would love for you to find freedom from the bondage of this sin. Last comment. I think we need to do better, need to do better of this as a, as a church family, communicating these kind of victories, because these things are happening all the time in our congregation. We get uh, the pastors and elders, we get the emails, you know, God has done this, and we thank the Lord for the church and my small group, la, 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 you know, all this stuff. We get it. We're encouraged by it. And then, but we don't 
we don't share them as much as we ought to. And I think we need to do better with that because that gives, again, it gives a, a reminder that this is the thing that God is doing. He is taking sinners and he is restoring them to a right relationship with God and with the church. And praise God, look at what he's doing all the time. So we will endeavor to do that and to celebrate that more in the future. First Corinthians 5, here's what I want you to remember. Holiness is happiness. Holiness is happiness and purity is a party. Let's stand together for a word of prayer.